podcasting from the beautiful Mile High City. You're listening to the Do It Again podcast, the official podcast of scientific wrestling, the undisputed leader in no-holds-barred catch-as-catch-can wrestling. Here's your host, Jake Shannon. in to the Do It Again podcast, the official podcast of scientific wrestling, the undisputed leader in No Holds Barred Catches Catch Can Wrestling. Uh, I am your host, Jake Shannon, and I am very excited uh, for you guys to listen in on this conversation because it's with one of my heroes. Now, all you guys know, you know, my heroes in wrestling uh, on, you know, in the ring, guys like Billy Robinson, guys like Carl Gotch, all these like amazing legendary guys that I was very fortunate to get to mentor with, uh, under. And, uh, but this guy is a hero in a different way. Uh, Mark Hewitt is a historian. And I remember when I first really was getting serious about catch wrestling and poking around in the pre-social media days of the internet, uh, some of the only really good academic level articles to be found because there's so much bullshit or kayfabe or whatever they want to call it in the pro wrestling business. But there's a lot of bullshit and it, it was hard to suss out. And Mark is a real inspiration uh, on the research side and in terms of keeping the names of these legendary guys uh, alive. He has two books. Catch Wrestling, A Wild and Wooly Look at the Early Days of Pro Wrestling in America, and Catch Wrestling Round 2, More Wild and Wooly Tales from the Early Days of Pro Wrestling. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome to the show, to the podcast, Mark Hewitt. Hi, Mark. Hey, hey Jake. Thank you very much, and a pleasure to be here. I'm really glad for this opportunity to uh, to talk to you about something I've been passionate about for a long time. So, Well, well I can't tell you how excited I was, you know, when we, we held that... Uh, our first kind of test show in New Jersey yeah. last summer. Yeah. And, and you were there. I mean, literally like <laughs> I'm so flabbergasted with the events of the show and be, you know, all the uh -huh. behind the scenes crap I had to do. And, right. and, but I saw you, I was like, Holy crap, Mark Hewitt. <laughs> oh my God. So I was just so excited. Oh, that was a real highlight for me to, to actually, yeah. you know, after so many yeah. years of just internet talk and whatnot, but to actually right. see you right. was really great. Right, it went back a, a long ways. I remember some some of those old forums back in oh my gosh, maybe the nineteen nineties. Yeah, maybe yeah, late, <laughs> way back like in ninety eight primitive internet days. I remember <laughs> I I would poke around in ninety eight and uh, yeah. yeah, like the uh, uh, so much good stuff. Anyway, I've really enjoyed uh, your work. It's uh, what I love is like you're you're so well sourced. Uh, and you're such a, a huge resource. I mean, in fact, the first guy I ever had on the show, uh, Ruslan, I only knew of because of you. So, <laughs> I mean, you're really a, a huge influence on, on me. Um, but I wanted to talk about how the books came about and how your interest in, in chronicling, uh, right. you know, catch as catch can and, mm -hmm. and, and the, the more competitive side of things. Right. Uh, well, let's see. I've, I made my living as a stonemason, but for over over 40 years, I've been passionate about researching and preserving the history of authentic, historic, catch-ass, catch-can wrestling, and keeping the legend of those 
America's old-time catch-us-catch-clean gladiators is the best term I can use. Yeah. Keeping their legend alive. Guys like Farmer Burns, Tom Jenkins, yeah. Tiger Man, John Pesek, mm. uh, Ad Santel, Clarence Eklund, Charles Olson. I mean, the list goes on. But there's such a history and a heritage there. And uh, I grew up in the 1960s and watched uh, the WWF, as it was known then, out yeah. of Washington, D.C. And, I, you know, I kind of got hooked on wrestling i love all combat sports you know boxing kickboxing I've, I've been a fan all my life and I, but i've always also been a history buff and i always want to know why is this the way it is or how did this come about and professional wrestling is such a unique uh, part of popular culture i want to know well, how did this thing come about what was its origin was it ever a legitimate competitive sport and it always seemed that to me that uh, those old timers that they knew something that they're behind what they were doing. There was a legit martial art, almost like a secret society. <laughs> and I truly came to believe that North American catch as catch can wrestling is the toughest martial art in the world. Well, and I, I you won't find any disagreement here. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> preaching to the choir. Um, so, you know, it, it's very interesting, right? Because, um, and you know Ruslan's work very, very mm -hmm. well. Yeah. And uh, it's just so fascinating because to your average Joe, you know, they probably just look at pro wrestling and think of it as a rather simple kind of thing. But, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like you said, like <laughs> when you said like a secret society, like, I mean, there's literally this whole kayfabe language mm -hmm. designed right. To, to hide the, the way that the business works and how these guys right. made a living. And mm -hmm. even though that was a little sometimes nefarious, um, you know, these guys could really, really go. And they always yeah. put it on the line when it counted. Yeah, they did. And they could. And even more so in the old days. And uh, hopefully we're coming back to it today. But yeah, there is a heritage and a history and a legacy of some of the toughest guys who ever lived. I mean, they, they could go, they could put their money on the line and go. And people knew that and respected that. And, uh, you know, the, and there were legitimate matches, you know, there were contests that actually took place, you know, they, it wasn't all just completely worked. There well, was real, real professional wrestling. Yeah. I think not the all thing the time and it wasn't the norm, but it, it did happen. And these guys knew something. They had this ability, this, this knowledge that got passed on, you know, from man, from guy to guy down through the years. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, I think a lot of people uh, tend to be so black and white about it, mm -hmm. but the fact exactly. is, is it's always been kind of shades of gray. I mean, you know, and, exactly, and yeah. that goes for boxing and these other sports. Anything. It's yeah, just, exactly, yeah. it became Absolutely. very, very clear with, with wrestling when, when they mm -hmm. started, you know, being very open about the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that even, and now, and, Back when, you know, there were no books back in that time. It was really hard to find any books that told you anything. So yeah. it was really hard to now, you know, there's hundreds of books, you know, all topics, anything re wrestling related. But it, it was really hard to get some of this information. And luckily there was, a, you know, I was able to track down some of the old timers still alive who had went back into that time period and where they were able to share with you their stories and i did a lot of newspaper research and archival research and old magazines and tried to piece you know the stories together 
and it's it's you know some amazing amazing stories and that's what i've I tried to retell some of those stories in, in, in my books and in anything I write, and there's hundreds of more stories still to tell. Well, and to you your know, credit, more. to your credit, the, uh, the whole, uh, before I ever met, um, uh, Carl, uh, Gotch or, or Billy Robinson in, in any way of actually learning from them, you know, the, the sport, mm-hmm. it was Dick Cardinal, uh, that, that, right. I learned with, and that was due to you because I didn't know who Dick was. Yeah, you know, so uh, that's another debt of gratitude that I have for your work because I would never have learned kind of that Carney style from Dick Cardinal. Mm -hmm. And he he was a master at it, uh, one of one of the best. And I, I believe he's not in real good health. I haven't been able to get in touch with him. I have not. Yeah, I haven't either. I've Um, heard he's not doing well. So you know, I've tried. I left messages for him and tried to call him. So you know, I, I wish him well. He's a great guy. But uh, he was a master at at getting out there. And that was another thing, you know, I was going to try to cover. But one of the big areas where the real art of catch as catch catch wrestling with the submission holds and the concessions was in the carnival athletic mm. shows, mm-hmm. the at shows, they called them. It was sort of like where they because they, a lot of that, you know, the at show performance was just like professional wrestling. It was a show, but. They really legitimately took on all challengers, and they never do who was going to be stepping in the ring with them. So they had to know how to protect the the money that was offered as a prize. And if they needed to make that guy give up in a in a, in a minute, they needed to know how to do it. Um, Carl von Hess was another one who came up in the carnival at shows, and he ah. told me that the the talker he had in, was a uh, Pappy Pappy Ryan. And he said he'd be wrestling one of somebody, some challenger. And if, if Pappy Ryan shouted out, wheel and deal, he knew that meant end the match immediately. So whatever <laughs> he had to do to end it, he'd, he'd, he'd have that guy crying because they couldn't pin him because that wouldn't count. You had to make the guy cry out so all the fans could hear that he was giving up. So you had, they had to produce an audible submission. Yeah, and and back then, you know, entertainment was so much different. It wasn't cell exactly. cell phones, YouTube, TV, no, magazines. No, no. I mean, it was these traveling carnivals that would come mm-hmm. to these different towns. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what people fail to realize is that, like you said, it was a show. But mm-hmm. if there's not a tough guy in the audience who's going to go and wrestle one of the wrestlers, right. you have to have a plant or right. a stick mm-hmm. in the audience to go wrestle for there to be a show. And right. so maybe it's a little predetermined because it's a plant, but the fact is this: that they would take any comer. That was the mm-hmm. that was the deal. And that to me, that always just impressed me was who would stand out on a platform and say, "I'll take you know anybody, step up, yeah, let's go." Yeah, so that to me, what kind of tough? How tough can that guy be? You just you know just and and they do it from town to town, you know, day after day, night after night. But it was professional, so the bottom line was selling tickets. Well, you know, and, and that's, the thing, that's the thing I talked to, uh, with Ruslan about, um, mm-hmm. that Catches Catch Can has always been about making money. Always. Exactly. It was yeah. always about professional wrestling. In the, it, Now, that term, what professional wrestling means, might have changed, but it was right. always about making money with wrestling. Right. Now, we talked about how the... Uh, bar owners, the the publicans mm-hmm. uh, over in uh, the Lancashire County were the original sponsors of wrestling, right. and it was this up and down right. Lancashire stuff that was mm-hmm. Flemish uh, submission wrestling that came up uh-huh. and integrated with the purring and all that. Right. 
And people right. can go listen to that uh, podcast, which was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, with it was. I've got to listen to it, and uh, Ruslan has done a tremendous job with it. Well, what he uh, did, what he did, what he did is is he filled in a portion of of the history for me. You had filled in the American side, and that's what right. I want to get to you right. about is about the okay. North American catches catch can. But you know, I it kind of. Because it was in the north, so close to, to Ireland, and there were so many Irish there. And I mm-hmm. always felt that there was something to do with Ireland. But this uh-huh. whole revelation that uh, Ruslan found about the Flemish wrestlers uh, is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it was amazing to me as well. It's something that I never, I mean, it was eye-opening and revolutionary to me. And, uh, of course, now, you know, we know Carl Gotch was, you know. Yeah, it makes a lot Belgium, of sense, right? right? So it all kind of comes together, but. So yeah, there's there's we see these streams that this all developed down, and you, you said in your other podcast with Ruslan, you talked about the Lancaster catch us catch can. So we you know we don't have to reiterate that, but in the early 19th century in North America, some of these Lancaster catch us catch can wrestlers started coming to these shores. Uh, Edwin Bibby, Joe mm. Acton, Tom Connors, mm. Joe Carroll, and they brought catch us catch can wrestling as they practiced it in in the lancaster Cashier district in england right and previous to this wrestling in north america and pretty much the western world had been stand-up wrestling collar and elbow or side hole back hole yeah um, there's my wife's cuckoo clock in the background <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> um but so and it was you know and that's it was stand-up. You took holds. A lot of times you couldn't even release the grip. You would try to put one man down on the ground. But catch-as-catch-can, as it developed from the Flemish up-and-down fighting to Lancaster, catch-as-catch-can, brought to North America, was wide open. You know, take a hold anywhere. Catch whatever part of that guy's body you can. Yeah. Take him on the ground. Roll on the ground. The the old that old concept was it was undignified and ungentlemanly to roll around on the ground. You would stand up, and once one guy was on the ground, the match was over. He had been thrown. So catch as catch can was a whole different concept. It be, it took off by storm in North America. Well, uh, they ate it up. And let me let me ask you something though. Like a house on fire. Let me ask you something because this just jogged my mind as you were mentioning that that. And, and and correct me, you know, or I I could be completely off base here. Because of that, you know, how the more like the collar and elbow, these styles that presidents wrestled in and whatnot, mm-hmm. you know, these more dignified styles right. of wrestling and how catches catch can was kind of always looked down. The people looked down their nose like it was human dog fighting or something. Mm-hmm. It was so exactly. brutal. Well, do you think it exploded so massively here in the United States because of the already existing rough and tumble, which was kind of like that nasty uh, Lancashire up and down fighting. Exactly. And that's, yeah, that's another strong point is that in America from colonial times on, there existed our own brand of rough and tumble fighting, um, brawling. They called it gouging because one of the main things to do, you try to gouge out your opponent's eye, but it would be what we call today street fighting, but it was all throughout you know, North American continent, Canada, United States, everywhere. And uh, kind of, um, it was completely no holds barred. It was never an official sport. I guess you might say it was like an underground hybrid sport, but it was practiced throughout the country. 
It involved grappling, strangling, limb twisting and breaking, headbutting, punching, kicking, biting, eye gouging. Um, and it was, it was well known and it was well practiced. You can read it. You know, they covered it in the newspapers. They described a rough and tumble fight, but, uh, yeah, you'd have things, to if yeah. you'd have to Google rough and tumble. Like mm-hmm. rough and tumble is kind of the general term yeah. for this. Right, rough and tumble, and you'd find I, one article that comes to mind was from 1860, and it described a rough and tumble fight that uh, went on for, and they put up they put up money side bets, and each guy would have a bunch of backers, and they'd all gather around. But it only went on for about 15 minutes. The guy, neither guy was able to overcome the other, but the description of the two guys tells it all one guy had one of his eyeballs hanging out of the socket his lower lip was chewed off the the other guy said his face looked like ground up meat (laughs) and two of his fingers were hanging by threads oh my gosh that tells you but one of the aspects and this i think to me is i would say was kind of unique to north america but every town every community had its own toughest man uh they called him the bully of the town. It didn't necessarily mean he went around picking on people like we think of the term bully. He just meant that he was the biggest badass in town. Yeah. Uh, and that title, if he was the toughest guy in town or the bully, he had to be ready to defend himself against any other local challenger, wandering challenger. And one of the historical things about the about America is our rivers and waterways were the main commercial and mm. transportation arteries yeah. in those days. Yeah. And the rivermen, the guys who worked those riverboats, were notorious rough-and-tumble fighters. Mm-hmm. Notorious. And every boat had its own champion. And he'd actually have a red feather in his cap. That was his title belt, a red feather in his cap. Mm. And, if, and that was the, that boat's champion. And as they'd be going up and down the Mississippi or the Missouri or whatever you know, body of water it was, and they passed towns, the town bully would actually come out to the bank. And, the, and he'd stand there and he'd hurl out challenges and taunts at the passing boats to try and get one of those boat champions to come and fight him. Wow. And, you know, they put money on it. Wow. And uh, it's wagering. And this kind of developed the touring wrestler or fighter, you know, going around being able to meet these local champs. So when Catch As Catch Can, Catch As Catch Can wrestling came to these shores, right. it kind of amalgamated with this already established rough and tumble fighting that was threaded, you know, into the American culture you know, at the time. Can I say something? Because it's so funny, like having the conversation with Ruslan and then having this conversation with you, because it just, it makes so much sense. So, you know, Ruslan would say that, it started out just like just like that. It was nasty. This Lancashire and had to do mm-hmm. you know had the purring where people break their legs and right. you know and they'd be like uh, it just it was really a nasty style of fighting. Exactly. Well, they had to clean it up uh, mm-hmm. to have it you know not get squashed by the state, and not have it be <laughs> yeah. illegal, right? To get right, li- right. licensed, so they clean it up, and right up when they clean it up is right when it comes to the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, like the late 1800s, and which happens to br- kind of reintroduce that viciousness, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 that rough and tumble nasty. Because right. Right. if people want a, like a, a cinematic idea of this, if you go and see that Scorsese uh, Gangs in New York. Exactly. You'll see like uh, Bill the Butcher. Like mm-hmm. these are the, how these street fighters used to fight. And they would right. take trophies like ears or lips. or Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
So it's fascinating to me, like how that just mm-hmm. real nastiness of catch right. seems to always recycle, you know, resurface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was plenty of, of grappling involved in what they were doing. And you mentioned Bill the Butcher Pool. He was at one time considered the toughest rough and tumble fighter in the, in America in his day. Um, he got killed in a gunfight, but it, you know, on the, hand in hand, he he could not be beat. He took on the who was the heavyweight boxing champion once in a rough and tumble fight, uh, John Morrissey, and beat him. You know, black and blue, almost mm. almost killed him. Mm. Um, he was he, so that character that uh, Daniel Day Lewis plays is based on a real guy, Bill the Butcher, who was considered the champion rough and tumble fighter in you know the pre Civil War days of the United States. Which is is funny because, you know, if you look at how, like, the UFC started, Uh it was just nasty. Like, people groin punching, Uh like, ten times in a row, you know? like And, and, I mean, really rough. You know, Uh teeth flying out of the ring and just nasty. Like those early rough and tumble matches, maybe not Mm -hmm. as nasty, but, and also like those early days of Lancashire up and down fighting. Mm -hmm. But as the money and the betting gets bigger, the state gets involved, there gets to be state sanctioning. And now you have like a UFC, just like Mm -hmm. we used to have, you know, these big promotions. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, you would know this better than me, but like the uh, Hackett Schmidt Gotch match, it was in Mm -hmm. Chicago, right? Right, right. I mean, that was like mm-hmm. a huge audience. It was to a go, major sports event. To go like from side Bowl. bets, to go yeah. from these little side bets to the Super Bowl mm-hmm. is amazing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an it was a captured the world's attention. That was the first professional wrestling match that I would say really captured the world's attention because you had George Hackenschmidt, the celebrated European Greco-Roman, you know, the old grand old. Greco-Roman European tournaments that would go on for days, super yeah. strong. Well, you know, he beat muscle, he beat Jenkins. Man. He beat Jenkins too. He did. He so did. He so he Kyle had Jenkins. that like nasty, and mm-hmm. Jenkins had beaten Gotch. So and Jenkins had you, beaten Gotch a few times. They so there was I could see why that match would sell. You know. Well, people were literally saying, "Well, Hackenschmidt's going to actually just rip Gotch's arms right off his body." I mean, that's people were in awe of that. Yeah, and they were not. Gotch was not expected to win. Right. So that that was that was, and and you know, you all kind of things have been written and said about that bout, but but Gotch clearly was the better man that day. And, yeah. And so. Yeah, sorry. So I didn't mean to take you down a whole no, other no, alleyway. No, no. It's just, <laughs> it's just fascinating to me that yeah. this kind of almost timeless cycle that mm-hmm. plays out and catches catch can so involved it is, Jake. with it. And you can see a full circle. I mean, I, you see it like that. You see, okay, well, in the Lancaster district in England, you had the Flemish weavers following the weaver, the textile trade from Flanders. To the Lancashire district of England, yeah, brought with them their up and down fighting, yeah. Um, it took off there, be, you know, catch as catch can professional. Hey, can you hear me? In with the rough and tumble fighting that was go. so prevalent here, and went on and developed this professional wrestling sport you know, in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, huge in this country. And then that North American style pro wrestling was taking, taking back to England in the 1930s. And they called it all in wrestling 
But right. it was really the same thing that those Flemish weavers had first brought to Lancashire, to North America, then back to England. So it's it's amazing story, you know, to follow follow that and see it to pop out, and develop, and it, it, it's it's kind of the same thing is there. The same elements are there, like like Solomon said. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see how the first full circle of how of how it it went from place to place. We had the the Flemish weavers coming to Lancaster, yeah. England, yep. bringing their bringing with them their up and down fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becoming Lancaster catch as catch can in a modified form of the up and down fighting. Those guys be making it's a professional sport in the mid 19th century, late 19th century. They several of the top catch as catch can wrestlers from Lancaster come to North America. It blends in with what's already well known and all over the place here. Rough and tumble fighting. They kind of merge together. They produce their own unique brand of of catch as catch can uh in the about 1929 1930 it's taken back to england where it's becomes known as all in wrestling but it's the same uh, the same product the right. same basic thing like like solomon said so long ago you know there's nothing new under the sun it's <laughs> it's, it's the same basic elements there yeah that's it's so amazing and you know that cyclical kind of nature uh what fascinates me is not only so it has this this kind of cycle in England, and then that cycle happens here right. in the United States. But what's very interesting to me is how the the the, the cycles of catch as catch can seem to really sync with the cycles of jujitsu. You know, from yeah. Japan yeah. because like mm-hmm. back when catch was so hot in this era, mm-hmm. you know, this golden era of catch, which you know we're talking like pre Ed Ed Lewis, Ed Strangler was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um there were so many challenge matches with uh with Jiu Jitsu. Exactly. Yep. The early nineteen hundreds and that And that looks really, like that looks like MMA yeah. in the late nineties yeah. and early two thousands. It, it was exactly. And what those American catch as catch catch as catch can wrestlers used to confront the Jiu Jitsu and the Kodakon Judo was rough and tumble fighting. Mm. And with, with their, you know, they reverted back to headbutting, you know, whatever they needed to take. Because in these rule, these matches, there were no rules. Mm-hmm. They'd say, you know, no rules. This is jujitsu rules, which meant no rules. And uh, and you know, they turned back that initial challenge. You know, George Bothner beat Higashi. Charles Olson beat Ono. George Baptiste beat a guy. I believe his name was Arata. Um, they were able to turn back. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't some really great, you know, uh, jiu-jitsu practitioners coming from Japan and spreading, you know, their, their martial arts. And, you know, I love that story as well and love to read about that. But I go back to my first premise. I really, I truly, truly believe is that catch as catch can wrestling as pre- honed and practiced in North America is the toughest martial art in the world. And you can see that in Japan today when friends of of yours like Carl Gotch and Billy Robinson mm. became icons in Japan teaching what that catch as catch can wrestling and Japan remains a hotbed of catch as catch can wrestling, you know, to this day. So again, we see that, that evolving circle 
you know, well, going from one place to another. To me, that the <clears throat> the fa- you you mentioned Japan, and it's had definitely a huge role in especially the 20th century keeping Catch Catch Can alive. Mm-hmm. And yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yes, I think the ultimate accolade that one can give to a combat sport is uh, to have Japan truly, truly embrace it and try to make it its own. Because you look at Japan, I mean, in World War II, this little tiny island Mm -hmm. had the entire world scared. Exactly. Because there's such a warrior culture. I mean, the way we... Yeah, the way we play ball sports... They have like their kids in karate, judo, uh-huh. wrestling, uh-huh. all of these things. And like you said, the, the thing that's interesting about Japan, like if you look at technology, they're, you know, now they invent a lot. But in the day, they didn't invent a lot. But what they would do is innovate upon what was brought to them. Hmm. So the, okay. their electronics became incredible. Like, way better than what we could do. We'd come up with the idea, but they would make it a thousand times better. Right, right. Well, that's the same kind of approach that the Japanese have taken to the catch catch can over there. I think that's why guys like Sakuraba and uh, Kiyoshi Tamura and the uh, Minoru Suzuki, these real stud, like, human beings, mm-hmm. they're some of the most feared guys in the planet, but these are all pro wrestlers as well. Pro wrestlers that, you know, that came from that. They came from the Carl Gotch, Billy Robinson uh, teaching, and they, you know, Carl Gotch, we, you hear a lot that, you know, he studied in Wigan, the snake pit. But I think if he were alive today, he'd tell you that a lot of what he learned was right in Columbus, Ohio. Yes. Under an old time oh, catch wrestler named Frank Wolf. Frank Wolf. Frank Wolf. No, actually, yep. I can tell you, and I think I have it on tape somewhere in one of my old mm-hmm. conversations with Carl. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he spent a lot of time in uh, Wigan, like a decade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was very serious about studying that craft. It became very, very good. Uh-huh. But he always insisted to me that the best catch wrestling was in America. That what was ha- that the American catch wrestlers were always the toughest. And he considered himself an American catch wrestler. That's what Carl yeah. himself told me. And it was okay. because of guys like Frank Wolf. Right. And he... He kind of he had come to America, but he really came into his own, you know, based out of Columbus, Ohio. Al Haft was a promoter, an old time wrestler himself. But it was Al Haft had was the main one of the big promoters of John Pesek. Mm-hmm. And to me, Pesek remains, you know, one of the greatest exponents and practitioners of catch catch can wrestling that ever lived. Yeah, of all so time. I, I I think that you know I think Carl Gotch might have absorbed some of that right there. You know, uh, I don't know if they ever, I, Pesic was alive till 78. So I'm sure their paths crossed and, or at least they knew one another. I'm sure there was some interaction there, but you know, that, that Midwest, there was a lot, it was a, a real, um, a, a garden for, for developing and growing, you know, catch as catch can wrestling. And a lot of great guys came out of there. There's been so many, you know, really great wrestlers. And that was one of the things that, I always want to do is, you know, these guys' names need to be preserved yes. just as much as any baseball Hall of Fame or football Hall of Fame. These guys were, were sports heroes, and that's always I always wanted to do whatever I could to help try and and tell their story. You know, it, 
only a few when I was a kid, you'd hear about Frank Gotch, you'd hear about Jimmy Lundis, Strangler Lewis, but you just you didn't know about a whole lot of the old timers. So I, I, you know, a, a lot of what I set out to do was try and retell their stories, preserve their stories, and, and uh, you know, uh, and that's that's what I've tried to do through my books and just through my work and continuing research, and it's just such a fascinating, fascinating subject. Well, I'm definitely still learning from you. Uh, I mean, you know, you've got such a deep knowledge. Uh, It's always wonderful to talk to you. Um, I know that your books, um, the publisher that they were with uh, went out of business, unfortunately. So um, is there any way to get them right now or... You know, I, yeah, the Paladin Press published them and they shut down. I think the uh, Kindle and the electronic books did them in. They just weren't able to keep up with the market. Mm. So I have the rights to the books. I have, and I, I would like to try and get them republished. I know you can buy them used books. I think they're okay. on eBay a lot of times. Amazon.com might sell them from, from used book dealers. Okay. I have, you know, just a few of them left myself. But I am going to try and do whatever I can to, to get them republished, get them back in circulation, maybe update them a little bit. Because like you said, we're learning all the time. And, yeah. You know, I could add things or, or correct some things. You know, we're, we, you know, we don't always get it right, but we're just trying to, to figure it out. So I would like to get them back on the market. I, you know, I see I can see. You know what I'm hoping is is a revival of, of real catch as catch 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 as catch can wrestling. You're your event this past summer in Hamilton, New Jersey was epic. It was amazing. It was a highlight of my life to have been there. And uh, it was exciting to you. It was really Joel exciting. Bain, yes. Um, to see, you know, I, I, I lived to see authentic, no holds barred, catch, <laughs> yes, catch can contested in a ring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 20 years ago, I, I wouldn't have been able to see. <laughs> well, we're, we're trying to, oh, man, it, you know how it is with this community. It's, it's a little bit like uh, herding cats. Cause everybody's so damn, <laughs> you know, it's just wrestlers. They just, that's yeah, just in the nature. Yeah. It's always it's been that way. So, uh, we'll get there. Well, you know, we're, we're trying to make the next show happen, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's funny because two things, one, uh, you know, I got first published in, um, you know, I had self-published, but I really got mm-hmm. published in uh, 2011. And what okay. you said is very interesting because I would definitely go back and rewrite some of the things, mm-hmm. um, you know what I mean? Because I've learned new things since 2011. Right. But when, you, when yeah. your publishing rights are with somebody else, it's very difficult to make those edits and updates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, the so, other yeah, thing, we, we well, the other thing, the well, hold on. The, yeah, the other thing I... The other thing that I wanted to uh, touch on real quick before I forgot was, you know, you're talking about, you know, your your effort to make sure that these names of these great guys, you know, these catch wrestlers stay alive. And I love that because, you know, when you compare it to other sports, man, catch wrestling, you really put it all on the line, man. Like you're really mm-hmm. abusing your, your body and taking years off right. your life uh, mm-hmm. when you practice this sport. So, um I really appreciate the fact that you're making sure that it's, and it's not just Gotch or not just mm-hmm. Hackett Schmidt that survived the mm-hmm. generations, you know, that all of these guys and their stories are told. Um, one guy that I, I could not find any information on the internet, but I, they, I would get stories from Billy Robinson's about him. I mm-hmm. get stories from Carl Gotch. I get stories from Dick Cardinal and that's Benny Sherman. Benny Sherman. Uh-huh. Yeah. Grew up in Alaska. He had an amateur wrestling background, made his way down to uh, 
the Northwest. He came on, you know, there was another strong catch s catch can tradition based in, you know, Seattle and Portland, Oregon, in that area. Really strong, you know, from the 1900s on. That's the first place uh, Frank Gotch defeated Tom Jenkins for his version of the world championship was in, in that part of the country. Oh, wow. Um, so there was, a, there was a deep, strong tradition, and Benny Sherman came up through that. Benny Sherman was, was a middleweight barely a light heavyweight i think he might have weighed 160 170 pounds i usually build him as weighing more but he, he was not a big monstrous guy but he was a catch ass catch can master and he you know his heyday would have been the 1930s um, by the 1940s he was still around 1950s but he was more he was doing a lot of refereeing for he promoted down in arizona but yeah and he took catch ass catch 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 ass catch can wrestling around the world he is one of the guys who went back to England in the early 1930s and introduced North American style catch as catch can pro wrestling to the British again, and they called it all in. He was involved with Athel Oakley and Carl Pacello and those guys who reintroduced, you know, what we know as you know back to England. But he also took the sport to South Africa. Uh, he spread it around the world. He he was one of the greats. Not too well, not too much remembered anymore or heralded anymore, but he definitely, you know, has a, and that Gotch and Robinson would mention him, you know, says a lot. Well, um, so, you know, uh, Dick mentioned him because Dick mm-hmm. wrestled on some carnivals with him. They were, yeah. I think, you know, Dick would have been slightly younger than him, uh, mm-hmm. maybe by seven years, but Dick's got to be in his late 80s, you know? Yeah, he's, he's definitely in his, his late 80s. So, I don't know his exact age. So, you know, Dick would, tell me these these crazy conditioning routines right that that <laughs> Benny Sherman would have him do they were like insane and uh, <clears throat> he would they would make uh, Benny would make the young the, the younger wrestlers do this with him in between shows you know for at the at shows right and it was like he'd set up a bench and you'd have to jump mm-hmm. the bench back and forth like <laughs> a thousand times or so you know like these brutal right. workouts right and uh, so anyway then I met uh, and got to know Carl Gotch quite well, and I'm talking to him, and uh, and he, he starts talking about Benny Sherman. Now, I think he must have known him through Frank Wolf or something, is my guess. Okay. I, I, it's been a long time, and I didn't know enough to ask him deeply about these things, but um, <laughs> the craziest thing to me is to have Carl Gotch say Benny Sherman is probably the best conditioned wrestler he ever met. Wow. Wow, that's amazing for Carl Gotch to say. So now he's saying that, and then I'm thinking about what Dick Carvel told me about these crazy fucking Uh insane workouts, and then Carl's own crazy insane workouts, you know, like the Gotch Bible and stuff. Uh So Carl held him in very, very high esteem. And then Billy, Billy was telling me at some point, and it must have been when Benny went over to England, because Billy's family was, you know, his uncle was a pro wrestler, um, uh, Alf, Alf Robinson. And so uh, he knew Benny Sherman, and Benny Sherman, I guess, was uh, like a friend of his family or something. But Mm -hmm. Sherman must have been, I'm guessing, 15 years older than Billy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. More more like Carl Carl Gotch's generation or Mm -hmm. Dick Cardinal's. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway, yeah. anyway, I've always wanted to learn about him, but there's, yeah, yeah. there's nothing to be found. Not a whole lot, and I've put together a little bit of biographical information on him. I don't have a 
whole lot. I don't even know if I know his obituary date, but he was one of the greats. He ended up settling down kind of in Arizona. He spent a long time in Hawaii um, working in Honolulu on with uh, the promoter was Al Karasik, and he was there for several years. But he ended up in Arizona, and I think they called him the old professor. He stayed, you know, he was promoting and refereeing and managing and having uh. a match once in a while was his his final days but yeah in his he had a you know worldwide reputation in fact i don't remember the full story but i believe when they were re-entered trying to get north american style pro wrestling going back in england that benny sherman they had just arranged a little private bout between benny sherman and a british wrestler named bulldog bill garnon and i think when they saw what benny sherman could do that's it kind of aroused some interest and it helped him really push and promote the sport so he he was a major player you know yeah benny sherman definitely and that's that's something that uh, both billy and uh, carl both both spoke so highly of him so we know that we know that he must have left an impact on him i mean for guys that are as legendary as as uh you know billy and carl and and dick uh uh, to really have been shook by this guy must have he must have been mm-hmm. truly amazing. So I've always wanted to ask you this question. I don't think I've ever asked you in our, just even in our personal conversations, who is your favorite catch legend? Who's like, the you know, as a historian, when you look at it, right. who is your absolute pinnacle guy, like your go-to guy if you need to explain it? Well, the guy who, the guy who captured my attention and really drove me to try and dig a lot of this information out was the Nebraska Tiger man, John Pesek. Because mm. mm. when I first started reading about trying to dig into the catch wrestling, the very limited number of books that were available, there was a Nat Flesher head from Milo to Lundis. There was mm. Fall Guys by Marcus Griffin. There was a very limited market. But there'd just be a mention of John Pesek, and, you know, almost in all. And then I, start, I read where he was actually what they called the policeman for Strangler Lewis and Billy Sandow's oh, wow. group of wrestlers. Oh, wow. And and then I, I thought, well, you know, why did Ed Strangler Lewis need a policeman? And he had Toots Mott in there, and Toots Mott was himself a very, very tough catch wrestler. Yes. But they used John Pesek as a buffer, and anybody, if they wanted to get to Strangler Lewis, not that Lewis couldn't handle himself, but, you know, why risk the title? There was still wasn't as fine-tuned as it is today. A referee could be working for the other, you know, a group. There was a lot of shenanigans that went on in pro right, wrestling. It wasn't right. all organized like it is today. So they needed a guy like Pesic. And one of the, the greatest matches I think Pesic had was against the Olympic champion, Nat Pendleton, mm. in Boston mm. in uh, 1921, I believe. And Pendleton had come out of the Olympics, a champion. Um, he had a tremendous uh, amateur background he and that in that day they were still amateurs were still practicing catch as catch can without all the holes but it was still it was still called they still called it catch as catch can wrestling they didn't use all the you know some some of the really devastating holes but so pendleton was a world-class champion wrestler and he came on the scene after the olympics had a lot you know big good-looking guy he got a lot of publicity and they were trying you know he was throwing challenges at everybody strangle lewis he wanted to fight jack dempsey he wanted to just do anything 
But so they, so uh, uh, Paul Bowser, the promoter in Boston, said, well, I'll arrange a side bet match with you and somebody I'll pick that'll weigh under 200 pounds. And Pendleton weighed a little over 200. But they, it turned out it was Pesek they brought in. It was a, a, a shoot. They really went at it. They put a lot of money on the line. Behind the scenes, there was a whole lot more betting. Pesek took him out with an ankle lock, snapped the Ugh. ligaments in his foot. Ugh. He limped back in for the second fall, and it was a matter of time till he had him tapping the mat again. Wow. And uh, I talking to Pesek's daughter, she said, Mary Lee Pesek, she said that her dad had described how he got him in that. They both they were both going for footlocks. Pesek locked his in. He saw Pendleton's face turn white as a sheet, Ugh. heard an audible snap, Ugh. and that was it. <laughs> Uh, and that, I mean, and so, and this was a guy who, you know, I don't even know if he finished high school, but never, he started right out as a professional wrestler. You know, as a kid, he'd wrestle on the farms, the other threshing teams for side bets and stuff. So he had no amateur background. He had no, you know, Olympic credentials, no AAU or NCAA. He just was a pure catch as catch can wrestler, learned it the rough and tumble hard way in, in Nebraska and was able to, to, you know, quickly defeat, you know, what would be probably considered one of the top scientific wrestlers in the country at the, in the world at the time, right yeah. out of the Olympics. Nebraska. So, I mean, Nebraska is interesting because it's always been a tough wrestling right. state. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mm -hmm. always, you always think about like Iowa or something like that, especially, you know, with the more collegiate uh, style, right. but uh, Nebraska is, I mean, because, Yep, uh, as you said, your favorite guy, uh, Pesic, right? Mm -hmm. But then, uh, and maybe I'm wrong. I I could be wrong. Wasn't Charles Olson from Nebraska? Montana. They Montana, called him from Montana. Montana. But he was actually German. He was a German immigrant. Came here as a kid. Um, I think they lived in North Carolina for a while. But Charles Olson would be another one, right? right next to or right under Pesic. Charles Olson, his real name was Max Flashcamp. But he was he was as tough as they came, but he was deceptive because he looked like a string bean. <laughs> he was like six feet one and might have weighed 170 pounds. Like a Grubmeyer, Fred Grubmeyer right, type Like of... Fred Grubmeyer. Yeah. He, he didn't, he wasn't all muscled up. But, yep. but he could, you know, he, 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 was a he, he could do it. He went on, yeah. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, sadly, you know, he, he, two of his opponents were had their necks broken and died. In the, um, like, like in the match, in the ring, dead, full Nelson. Right. Ugh. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The one in Texas and one up in Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, <coughs> he was a, <coughs> excuse me, he was a what they called a barnstormer or a ringer. He'd dress up like a bumpkin, mm. come into town. If he find out, you know, remember. A little bit ago, we were talking about every town had its local pride, its toughest man. He'd, he'd get word that there was a that this little town here had a, got a wrestler they you know thought the sun rose and set on, and that those local sports enthusiasts were willing to bet money to back him up. So he'd pop into town with a corn stalk in his mouth, a <laughs> farmer's hat, beat up clothes, you know, and and, and uh, he might get a little job working as a machinist or a waiter in a restaurant. But he'd start bragging about, you know, I can wrestle. And everybody'd say, Yeah, sure you can. <laughs> so and next thing you know, they'd arrange a match with their champion. And then 
some of Olson's guys would slip into town with piles of cash. They'd cover all the bets. The odds would be in their favor, and they'd clean up. And they and he did this, you know, from town to town to town. That's and 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 there was, you know, there was several of those barnstormers like that. Farmer Burns did that a lot in his early days. Uh, and say uh, he took uh, Gotch with him up into and he, and the he, Klondike, right up into right, the Pacific was, Northwest. That was the teething ground for, for Frank Gotch. Yeah, Frank Gotch went up there using the name Frank Kennedy. He was supposed to be fresh out of the Spanish-American War, <laughs> trying to mine some gold. And, yeah, they cleaned up. But, you know, they'd burn out a district because then the word would get out, okay. Yeah, it's a hustle. Had. Yeah, it's a hustle. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, to Farmer Burns, how he would justify that because these, these guys, they weren't crooks. You know, they weren't like. They they said, well, they were trying to get our money. So yeah. what's the difference? Yeah, right. We were just trying to get, we just took theirs. Right. So it's, it's like it, the, they the didn't the steal the money. Down. Yeah, they didn't steal yeah. the money. They just bet, yeah. bet they, you in one. Yeah. The people thought, well, they were going to take us. They thought we were hayseeds. <laughs> right, right, right. Pumpkins, but we, we outfoxed them. Right. So anyway, so there's so many of those stories, uh, Jake, like that. and But just the fact that these guys had that skill and that ability you know, that yeah. always, I found that so fascinating. Now, what did these guys know? You know, they knew these hooks. They knew how to quickly turn a match. They knew how to grab that arm or, or grab that foot or whatever technique they were using. They were able to, to do it and end and, and the match. And unfortunately, um, one of the things that I, Dick probably, Dick Cardinal probably said this to you. Did he ever talk to you about exploding into the, into the hole? Oh, yeah. Where you didn't just grab the hold you would just and then it was too late to turn back yeah not like might break the tendon might snap like today you know in these in these uh submission tournaments and whatnot Uh they get the hold and then give you a chance to tap but this is not Mm -hmm. that this is just go and break it like (laughs) right right like when uh carl von huss told me when the happy ryan said wheel and deal yeah you just ended it whatever it took because because you know it was a volatile situation that the locals might be ready to tear down the tent. <laughs> so they wanted to end the match, get their money, and, and get, get somewhere out. safe. <laughs> yeah, and it's your job, and it's a time when mm-hmm. uh, jobs aren't you know everywhere, especially a cool one like that. Right, right, right. Can you imagine that that uh, that that lifestyle? It'd be uh. you know, um, Sputnik Monroe was another one who, who traveled a lot with the carnivals in young days, and mm. just listening to them tell stories, him and Billy Wicks. Mm, yes, Billy Dick Wicks, Cardinal. I learned about Billy Wicks thanks to you as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all these guys are gone now. Yeah. Dick's uh, still alive, but all the rest are gone. So I'm really thankful. You know, I was able to to befriend them, to converse with them, to record interviews with them. Yeah. To tell their stories and share because they, they loved what they did. They loved wrestling. They loved the art of it. They loved the sport of it. They just, and, you know, and a lot of those guys back, Say about early '90s when I first started trying to reach out and contact some of these guys, they were like overjoyed that somebody wanted to hear their story. <laughs> yeah, you know? somebody cared because they kind of were working as a security guard or a janitor, yeah. you know, kind of forgotten. So yeah. when so, you know, and one time they had been main event, you know, headliners. Right. So they it was they were really thankful, and I think you know, hopefully, it gave them some, <laughs> it, it gave them a burst that hey, people want to hear my story and and, and and hear about it in the years to come. So that's, I've done, I've tried to do that, you know, just, just preserve that knowledge that uh, listening to Billy Wicks talk about his carnival days. Um, Jim Morgan was another one. Red Bastine 
Yeah, Red Bastide. Um, Red was a great guy. I mean, uh, I got to know him through the Cauliflower Alley Club. And, you know, I was living in Santa Monica at the time. And every time he came into town, man, he'd take me out to this place where he told me <laughs> Dean Martin was having uh-huh. a steak with, with him and somebody else. And, yeah. I mean, just the nicest guy and so funny. He was an extremely nice guy. Yeah, Red was a prince of a guy. Well, until until I got him and Billy Wicks on the phone together, and then it was all just curse words and oh. <laughs> cutting promos on each other the whole time. Yeah, I think uh, that Billy used to call Red his illegitimate brother-in-law or he had some kind of he'd call him something oh that's my illegitimate brother-in-law well they both came up with uh henry colin right henry colin right so. yeah see there's another one there's another name we can <laughs> talk about henry colin yeah america's Farmer burns protege america's got uh, a huge and very deep uh catches catch can history that hasn't mm-hmm. really i don't think um with the exception of you and a few other people uh you know obviously mike chapman is carrying the torch mm-hmm. for all things sure. frank gotch um, mm-hmm. but there's very few people out there really telling these stories. So, um, I, I'm going to do anything I can to help you get those books, uh, published. Well, thanks Jake. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate, you know, everything you've done and continue to do and, and, uh, you know, keeping the, the sport alive and, the, and, and teaching it and, and, and spreading it, spreading the gospel of it, uh, <laughs> trying, so to speak, <laughs> trying it's, uh, it's definitely a job some days, but you know, it's one of those things once you get the bug. It's hard to get rid of. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've actually, I've yeah. got a funny story. I don't know if I told you this about uh, that Charles Olson match in uh, Texas where right. he killed that cat named Stanley Lake, right? Right, right, well, right. Stanley Lake was the name of some other guy. I can't remember his name, but he was the Colorado. He was actually the Colorado State Wrestling Champion. Wow. Right? And he went to mm-hmm. Texas to go hustle some money. But little mm-hmm. did he know, he picked on Charles Olson, right? Right. He was going under a different name. Right. Gary Mays. Right. right. So neither one of these guys really know that it's a kind of a dangerous guy. That's going to be a dangerous match, which ends yeah. with Stanley Lake or whatever. You know, that was the the name for that Texas fight. But he was the Colorado I think his champ. Name, his real name might have been McCray. Was it McCray? Yeah, something like that. Does that sound right? Joe McCray? Or I mean, I like think I, I'm telling stuff you know. I'm saying this mostly yeah. for the listening audience. But the, uh-huh. the thing that was weird about it that you may not know is that, so like my own personal kind of narrative and uh, yeah. connection, uh, uh, I don't know. This might be too weird and mystical for some people. But for me, it, <laughs> it, it has some meaning uh, that, you know, it's funny because Stanley Lake is the actual name of a lake um, really? in Colorado. So he took his name from this little okay. lake where he lived by. Now, the oh, irony man. is is I went to high school about 10 miles away from Stanley <laughs> Lake, okay? But the yeah. thing is, is that Stanley Lake was... Okay, this is so weird and totally off topic, and I'm sorry if this is boring, but it was totally... Uh, Stanley Lake was built right next to Rocky Flats, um, which was the production ground for all the nuclear triggers in for all the nuclear arms and now Mm -hmm. there was a giant disaster if you google america chernobyl Mm -hmm. uh rocky flats will come up and there's a spike in all these weird cancers there okay i ended i ended up getting cancer the Uh same year that the fbi ended up shutting down uh this this other government operation under the uh the uh, department of energy anyway long Uh story short the weird thing about this for me is that 
um, I ended up getting cancer and the cancer uh, was mostly in my neck, which I got radiated as part of the cure when I was a kid, but then I'm an idiot. So I go and I wrestle and when I'm 21, I'm wrestling a really good wrestler and he ends up breaking my neck. Oh no. But the weird thing is, is it's connected to Stanley Lake because of that. Right. I, I mean, it's, I, this is totally not scientific. <laughs> this is just weird coincidence, dumb shit, hey. but. It's always baffled me. <laughs> it's always baffled me because I'm like, man, I broke my neck wrestling. Uh, and I did it in Boulder, which is very close to Stanley Lake, which is another uh-huh. maybe 15 minutes away. Um, anyway, just it's a really weird story to me. Um, it, it is. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I could see how that would, <laughs> how you'd feel that way about it. Yeah, Stanley Lake. Wow. So, yeah, uh, I, yeah if I'm memory serve me right, his name was Joe McRae. And he was actually on his honeymoon. Uh, and he was just traveling around the Southwest trying to pick up some spending money. Uh, and he agreed. Charles Olson was doing the same. And he was using the name Harry Mays. I think it was 1911. And it was an Amarillo. And they, somebody arranged a match between a guy calling himself Stanley Lake and a guy calling himself Harry Mays. Uh, it was obvious once I, I, Olson said that, uh, you know, he, he was a tough guy. And he got him in that full Nelson, and he would do that. He would do a full Nelson, in the same time he was moving forward. So he would smash the guy uh, you know, head down into the mat uh, with the full Nelson fully locked on, like the old time way where they push the neck to one side. To the side, yep. And it's it just he heard the crack. He said it sounded like a whip whipping a, 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 a like an old stagecoach driver cracking a whip, and uh, and that was it. And that he actually, you know. He, I saw a later interview for him, and he, Charles Olson became quite wealthy. He took the money he made from these side bet matches and invested it in what was then just the fledging, fledgling motion picture business. Wow. The theaters that would show these the first early motion pictures. And he became a millionaire from that. But he said in a later interview that he would give every penny he had if he could turn if he could change that and save and not have killed that guy. He, yeah. He, it, I think it haunted him. It's interesting because, you know, uh, I mean, he, he, he was responsible for, uh, two in ring, mm-hmm. uh, deaths. And, but like you said, by all measures though, even though, <clears throat> excuse me, he was, you know, he basically killed these men. Um, he still wasn't a bad person. Like, no. you know, these, this was an accident that happened in wrestling and, you know, he didn't mean to kill him. He would have thought the guy would have tapped him. Sure. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, it was, it was just, it was a, a tough life, a tough sport. And it was, you know, the chance they were taken, they knew what nobody forced them to do it. They went into it and if, you know, they were, they were trying to make a living. So no, he wasn't like a, from all accounts, he wasn't a vicious mean he was a very soft-spoken quiet unassuming guy in street clothes he, he didn't stand out you know just like a tall thin uh gentleman you know but uh in a ring or on the street he, he you know he, he could take care of anybody that he had to and he he did it for years you know traveled he move on from one town to another had a very tough reputation and uh, he made a lot of money off these barnstorming as a ringer under various names, and they'd clean up in cash. And it was a different time and place. And, you know, you, you could show up somewhere and say you were somebody. There was no Internet background search or yeah. news traveled slow. So you're, it was a different era, and they were able to do this. 
And, uh, you know, he, he made a living out of it. And, you know, they always justified it, like we said a little bit ago, by saying, well, they were trying, they thought I was a rube. They were trying to take my money. So I just, I turned the table on them and took theirs. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a truly a great sport and an and amazing sport, but man, it's a rough one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Like I've, one of the first things we, we said, it's, you know, the, the, the most, the toughest martial art in the world. And I, I truly, truly believe that. Yeah. Wow. Well, Mark, I really appreciate your time. Um, you've been very generous and you're always posting great stuff on all the forums and stuff. What, what is, uh, what is the best way for people to connect with you or to, you know, see some of the stuff that you're sharing and, and that kind of thing? Well, I, I post a lot on, uh, the, uh, pro wrestling historical society, Facebook page. Okay. I post a lot on uh wrestling historian salon. Okay. Uh, I post a lot on USA wrestling. Um, you know, I try to, I try to spread it around, but I, I, and I'd like to, you know, I, I'm working on a series of articles. That's kind of like, it's called before MMA. And I'm going to describe several of these matches that kind of pre predated MMA, MMA, but were really, you know, or, or, you know, led into it. And one of them was the mixed style matches they used to have between wrestlers and boxers. Mm. And I wrote up a, an article about that. Um, and I was going to, you know, I, I haven't posted it anywhere yet, but, uh, you know, I, I'd probably, you know, I'd, I'd love to post it on you know anything connected with you or, oh, great. or get yeah. it out there Heck yeah. some kind of way. I'd be so damn proud. That'd be cool. Just send it so, over. Yeah. Okay. I might, maybe I'll just send you the thing and you, you can do with it. You know, you can format it or do what you want, but I included a bunch of pictures with it. Oh yeah. So forth. But well, then I, I, I foresee a, a series of those. That's the first one, but I'd like to cover, you know, I'll also probably cover the Gene LaBelle, Milo Savage fight. Nice in Salt Lake uh, City. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to really explore down in Rio de Janeiro, the 1976 uh, Wim Ruska versus Ivan Gomez fight. Which is actually billed as a Valley Tudo, hmm. uh, with it with Anoki was touring through through Brazil, and uh, he hmm. pitted uh, uh, Wim Ruska, the, the judoka, against you know I- Ivan Gomez, the the luta livre fighter oh, from nice. Brazil. Nice. So I'd like to write up that story. So I've got a few that I'd like to put together, and uh, maybe we can you know start. You can post them because you know this. It doesn't do any good just to write this stuff or, or find out the knowledge. I, I want to share, gotta it, share and it. I want people to to grow, to learn from it and carry it on. That's been my whole MO the whole time is just to, to preserve this knowledge, this, this history, this amazing history that has fascinated me. And, since I was a little kid, you know, I want to, I want to share that and keep it alive. So yeah, I <laughs> generations can, to come can look back. I could certainly understand that. I mean, cause you've inspired that in me as well. So, uh, you know, I'm real excited. So guys, we're going to have some really amazing articles coming out pretty soon. And, cool. uh, otherwise find, uh, you, you can message me too, if you want to be connected with Mark. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to correspond with anybody email, you know, Comments, questions, corrections. <laughs> I, I, I love to talk wrestling. I love to talk, talk old time wrestling. Great. So I'm more than happy to 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 email you know anybody. Okay, um, great. Well, uh, guys, Mark Hewitt again. His uh, amazing books, uh, Catch Wrestling, and then Catch Wrestling Round Two. Uh, probably can find them uh, used. They might be a little more expensive because they're out of print. Um, and hopefully, we'll get. Uh, 
these those uh, books in print here soon. Yeah, this is going to encourage me to <laughs> talking to you and, and, and Bruce Lon and others. It just encourages me to, to really get on the ball and get these back available. Yeah, and I know that you got to have a digital, like a PDF somewhere. So you could just upload that to Kindle. That's basically all mm-hmm. you got to do. Okay, I do. I do. They Paladin Press sent me the the uh, PDFs of Perfect. the books once they shut down. So I so okay. Well, that <laughs> sounds good. I need to look into that. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for all your time. Thank Mark. you. Thank okay. you. Enjoyed enjoyed it very much. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. All right. Good night.